Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Royally Us podcast. I'm your host, Christina Garibaldi. This week, we break down Prince Harry's revelations in his docuseries, The Me You Can't See, Kate and William's trip to Scotland, and the Queen's tribute to Prince Philip. As always, I am joined by Molly Molshine, and this week, our guest is royal commentator, Jonathan Sacerdoti, who reveals how the royal family feels following Prince Harry's tell-all, and if their relationship could ever be healed. Molly, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. I'm just brimming with royal thoughts. What about you? So many royal thoughts. We have so much, a lot of big news, not just Prince Harry's uh, docu-series, but of course the um, findings from the investigation of Princess Diana's panorama interview. Um, William and Kate go to Scotland. The Queen makes an appearance out and about. So there's definitely a lot to break down. So much going on. It's just when you think they're going to slow down for a minute, they they just, there's a week like this. <laughs> Seriously. All right. Well, let's get to our Royal Roundup. And obviously, Prince Harry did this docuseries with Apple TV, The Me You Can't See. And he opened up about his mental health, how Diana's death affected him, and his father, Prince Charles. Take a look. Because my father used to say to me when I was younger, he used to say to both William and I, well, it was like that for me, so it's going to be like that for you. That doesn't make sense. Just because you suffered, that doesn't mean that your kids have to suffer. So there was, a, there's a lot to unpack in this um, in this series. I mean, it was a five part series, so his story kind of spanned through all these episodes. I mean, what shocked you the most about his revelations? So much. I think the most shocking thing to me was just how hard it was for them to get mental health resources when. Prince Harry was the head of a mental health charity along with William and Kate. And, you know, we know that other people in the family have had those resources. So I think that is what I still don't understand. What about you? Same. I feel like, you know, what he's trying to say is like he never properly grieved his mother. And then it all kind of came crashing down on him when he was about 28 years old. Because he said from 28 to 32, he felt like super lost. He was having these panic attacks. And I just feel like he's said, you know, once she died, they never really talked about it anymore. So it's almost like they kind of brushed it under the rug and were like, okay, we're going to go about our life. But no, my mom died when I'm 12. And, you know, I'm grieving 
in front of, and he, you know, what was interesting, he's like, more people were grieving more so than he was in that moment because he, and he's like, why is this happening? This is so strange. Yeah, that was so sad to think Mm -hmm. that they never talked about it. And it was believable. I think a lot of families, it's not even just the royal family. I think a lot of families just sort of try to shrink away from that kind of trauma Mm -hmm. because it is so hard to deal with. So it it makes sense that he is now like still processing it. Uh, Totally. And he said therapy for the past four plus years has really helped him. I think Megan coming into his life kind of opened these floodgates and was like, okay, I can get the help that I need. But, you know, and in the process, he kind of realized, you know, some things were wrong with my childhood. You know, Prince Charles saying, you know, I suffered, so you have to suffer. It's kind of a huge statement. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I I do feel kind of some sense of gratification that he is talking about his family's role in the this media issue that he always talks about, because it is a two-way street. You know, the royal family plays along with the media. It's sort of like this ongoing chess game between Mm -hmm. them. And it's good to hear him acknowledge that his family is complicit in not only, you know, appearing in the news, but, you know, using it to their benefit as well. So it's good to hear him acknowledge that and not just say media bad for once. Uh, but yeah, it, it is, it, it is good to hear him talk about breaking the cycle, but of course the way that that comes out and the way that people interpret that is trashing his family, even right. though I'm sure that probably wasn't the intention. I don't think so. Cause I mean, he did say when he left the family, he felt that he left it open for reconciliation and healing. But like I said earlier, I just don't know about at this point, if there's room for that, because I, th- I just think that they're like, Oh my God, you know, Stop talking. Right. (laughs) His approach now, I mean, he can't possibly think that this is the way to reconciliation and healing. So I'm wondering what changed from the time that they, because remember in their statement, they said, we want to be half in, half out. We still want to come to events. And now it's like, I don't even know if Megan will ever set foot in the UK again. So what changed? What shifted? And if nothing had shifted, would we be seeing him open up this much? I don't know. I don't know either. And it's like, what's next? I mean, what is what other truth bombshells is he going to kind of drop on us? Because, you know, they have this podcast that he has this big deal with Apple TV. So this is going to be going on for a while. So I, I don't know. And I'm sorry, the big deal with Netflix. So it's there's definitely going to be a lot of things coming out. And People want to hear him speak. So I think if he's going to give the public what they want, so I think he's going to keep talking. Yeah. He's going to run out at some point. Right. Like <laughs> He needs to put some time between updates. Seriously. We're like, okay, we've gone through when you were 12. We've gone mm-hmm. through the times before that. We've gone through 28 to 32. Like you're going to run out. So. Right. Yeah. For our sake, please keep talking because it gives us something to talk about. But I don't know about yeah. the, how the family's going to feel about this. Um, well, in other news, I mean, Harry and William did both speak out this past week about the investigation into Princess Diana's. 1995 panorama interview with Martin Bashir. So take a look at what Prince William had to say. It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. The interview was a major contribution to making my parents' relationship worse and has since hurt countless others. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear paranoia and isolation 
that I remember from those final years with her. So yeah, so they both released statements. Uh, Williams spoke out in a video statement um, and then Harry released his own uh, written statement. And it seems like, yes, they are both uh, happy that they can, you know, put a kind of uh, conclusion onto this uh, investigation, but still a lot to kind of take in. Yeah, it seems that Harry's statement was a little more strongly worded Mm -hmm. than Williams, I would say, right? No, totally. Yeah. He said, our mother lost her life because of this and nothing has changed. And I don't know. I think it was a lot of factors that that caused that to happen, you know, and to lay it at Martin Bashir's feet is a lot, even though obviously what he did was like unequivocally wrong. Right. Totally. And Martin Bashir still stands by the interview. He said, you know, he doesn't believe he apologized to the royal family, but still believes that his uh, tactics and his interview were kind of uh in the right i guess i mean yes there were some bad things that happened and the way that he went about getting this interview was obviously not correct but he still stands by the interview and yeah like you said i think you know he didn't put those words in diana's mouth um she i mean she did but you know prince william said that this kind of led to even more strain within uh their marriage and kind of got the paparazzi really going on her on her right and i think she probably would have done this interview with someone else if it wasn't Martin Bashir. Don't you think? I don't think that he was powerful enough to convince her to say all of these things, which were like earth shattering at the time. I don't, I don't think she said those things because she saw these falsified documents from him. I think she would have said it anyway. I think so too. She did speak out before in a book that was later revealed that uh, it was her that spoke about it. So she was, you know, she wanted to get her story out there. Right. I do think that, uh, I forget which brother made this point that it enhanced her paranoia in later years. I think that's probably a hundred percent true. And definitely like to think that all of these, it was William who said that this contributed significantly to her fear, paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her. And that I think, yeah, that's a hundred percent Martin Bashir's fault. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So sad. All right. Well, Prince William also spoke about his late mother while touring Scotland and saying that visiting Scotland is one of his saddest and happiest moments. Take a look. I was in Balmoral when I was told that my mother had died. Still in shock, I found sanctuary in the service at Crathy Kirk that very morning. And in the dark days of grief that followed, I found comfort and solace in the Scottish outdoors. As a result, the connection I feel to Scotland will forever run deep. And yet alongside this painful memory is one of great joy, because it was here in Scotland 20 years ago this year that I first met Catherine. Needless to say, the town where you meet your future wife holds a very special place in your heart. George, Charlotte and Louis already know how dear Scotland is to both of us, and they are starting to build their own happy memories here too. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, they've always spoken about their mother and how their death, her death affected them. But it seems like even a little bit more, maybe because the anniversary is coming up or this tribute is coming up, that they're really speaking out, out more about her. Right. I felt like there were years when we would go without hearing mm-hmm. about her before, because I think, you know, they were trying to sort of not rehash the bad times. And, you know, I think we've all heard that there are like, PR campaigns to get people to like Charles more. And I think every time Diana is mentioned, those 
PR campaigns get knocked like three steps back. So it is interesting to see them opening up so much. And I think, yeah, it's, it's nice to see William opening up as well. And he just seems very genuine in this speech and like he was speaking from the heart. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he said, you know, this was the moment I found where I found out my mother had passed away, but also the moment and where I, where I found Kate. So at least, you know, he has good memories and bad, bad memories from there. But, you know, of course he and Kate met at university and 20 years later, look where they are, three kids, a beautiful marriage and going to be king and queen one day. Right. And I loved that she wore a dress that, you know, it was blue. It was like Scotland's flag. And it was such a Diana dress. It was such an echo of Diana's look. And Mm -hmm. I just think, you know, they're, they're just remembering her in such a classy way. It's very totally. I totally agree with you. Well, William was in Scotland for several days before Duchess Kate joined him on tour and uh, they did have a little bit of fun and she showed off her DJing skills, which weren't so great. Take a look. I love seeing that it's been so long since we've really seen them on a proper tour because of COVID and everything. So it's nice for them to like get in there, have fun with, uh, with locals, talk to locals and, you know, do some DJing. It's so fun whenever they do an activity. I feel like they really shine, especially a sports activity. But yeah, this is the first time we've seen either of them play music, I feel. So, you know, maybe not so much as in the jeans as the sportsmanship, but still a great try. I'd love to know what's on their playlists. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's a whole, yeah. I would love to guess. Uh, well, Kate, better watch out because it seems like uh, she has some competition because this was the cutest thing. Prince William got his flirt on with a 96-year-old woman who just really wanted a kiss from from the prince. <laughs> it's so funny. And he was like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, it's COVID. And also, I'm not supposed to, like kiss my future subjects right. seriously yeah she said it's tradition to have kiss uh, a kiss on both cheeks and he politely uh, declined but definitely a really cute moment yeah he definitely handled it well and then one of the staffers said could you stop flirting with my residents and he <laughs> said sorry i'm trying not to i'm not sure who's flirting more it's so funny <laughs> I really like when they have these moments of like seeing their personality and everything. It's totally, it's so cute. And uh, finally uh, wrapping up Prince William news for the week, his biceps were on full display as he received the COVID-19 vaccine. And a lot of people had a lot to say on social media about it. People were loving it. And it made me realize he like always wears long sleeves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I've never seen him shirtless, I guess. We've never seen right. him on the beach or anything like that. I think the only time we ever see them in short sleeves is when they're like playing polo and they don't mm-hmm. really even do that that often that we see. Right. So it was really interesting because we hear so much about like the dress code for royal women and I'm like, oh my gosh, he couldn't even wear short sleeves <laughs> to get his vaccine. So maybe it's even stricter for royal men, you know? Who knows? Who knows? Well, yeah, like I said, a lot of people had a lot of fun with uh, with the bicep shots and 
never knew that Prince William was that ripped. <laughs> I know. I think it's like the Prince Philip jeans. He's very like tall and statuesque and athletic. <laughs> totally. All right. Well, Queen Elizabeth made an appearance on board HMS Queen Elizabeth ahead of the carrier's first deployment, but it was her special brooch that garnered a lot of attention. And this was a nod to her late husband, which I love. Yeah, really sweet. It's known as the Scarab brooch, and it was a gift from him in 1966. So she's had it for so long. Apparently, she also wore it for their 70th anniversary photos. So it's just got a ton of meaning for her. So really nice. Yeah, like you said, you know, there's always the special ways that I feel like the, the royal women a, a lot of times use fashion to make statements. And, you know, she, the Queen Elizabeth has, had, has done that for years. And this was just another way to honor her late husband. Right. Even her brooches alone, you could write like a book on. I'm sure someone there has. Is. I'm sure somebody has. If not, yeah. Molly, get on it. It's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now it is time to spill the royalty. And former BBC correspondent spoke out about the Panorama interview. And the moment that stood out to him the most, I think, I thought this was pretty interesting. Right. This former BBC correspondent, Michael Cole, he said that the most striking thing out of all the revelations that they made was when she sort of said that Charles is not fit to be king. And she even said that he might not want to be king. Mm. So, of course, if you've read any books or anything about this interview, you know that this really was out of everything, like the affairs everything else, none of that really moved the needle on her needing to not be in the royal family anymore. But apparently this was the moment that the queen and, you know, the people in the establishment were like, okay, this cannot go on. Yeah. But which is kind of crazy after everything that she said, you know, obviously that interview was when she said, you know, there's three in this marriage, it's very crowded. And that wasn't the moment that really got them going. It was that he can, he does not want to be future king, which is kind of surprising and pretty shocking to me. Yeah. And she definitely sort of planted a seed that still is kind of growing to this day of people sort of being angry at him and wanting some sort of vengeance for the way that she was treated in the marriage. And even Michael Cole made the point, I mean, this was a very dramatic statement, but he said three or four centuries ago, that would have been called treachery. And when I heard her say that, I could hear the axes being sharpened in the background. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> that, is <very> axes. <laughs> that is very dramatic. All right, now it is time to break down the royal rules. And this week, royal commentator Jonathan Sacerdoti joins us to talk about the fallout of Harry's interview and where the royal family can go from here. What surprised you the most about Harry's docuseries? Well, I think everyone was uh, thinking they'd heard it all from Harry and Meghan in terms of bombshells about the royal family. It was interesting to see his confessions, as, uh, as some might put them, of, of mental health problems he'd had, but also particularly how he pinned the blame on his own family. And let's not forget, that means on his father, the future King of England, and even uh, his grandmother, the Queen, who was Prince Charles's mother. He said that these were things that they had done to each other and therefore were being done to him. Would you say that that was the most shocking thing um, ab about him criticizing Prince Charles's parenting skills, which in turn criticized the Queen as well? 
I think partly that, and because also, aside from them being the royal family, I think some people questioned whether or not that's really the best way to try and make peace with your family, uh, which was apparently what they were meant to be doing. And that perhaps, you know, all families have complications and difficulties in the dynamics between parents and children, and perhaps even grandparents. And, and certainly it's a phenomenon that we're aware of in our modern era, that you can be messed up by some of the things your parents did inadvertently in your upbringing. But I think that sharing them on such a spectacular scale with the whole world, when you know that the eyes of the press and, and loads and loads of people talk about you and everything you say and hang on every word you say, well, I think that, you know, that's a very big consideration, even if they weren't the royal family. Add to that that he knows that his family is not a normal family and that their reputation is vitally important, not just for themselves, but really for the way that the UK works constitutionally. And so it becomes a sort of double shock to people people. Yeah. I mean, where does the royal family go from here? I know their motto is never complain, never explain, but is it getting to the point where they kind of have to say their side uh, because Harry is saying so much about them? I think they'll probably maintain a similar approach to the one they have used so far. And, and the reason I think that is, is that the royal family obviously is also involved in a certain amount of PR about themselves and then about their individual constituents. So the actual members of the family themselves uh, and Prince Harry and Meghan are involved in a PR job here as well, recasting themselves for whatever their ambitions are in the future, whether it's for Meghan to one day have a run to be president of the US or just to be goodwill ambassadors around the world or, or simply just to make money, as they've said they feel they need to do. Whatever their aim is, it's definitely different from the royal family's PR aim. The royal family, remember, is looking after its reputation in terms of hundreds of years, while these two people are looking after their reputation in terms of months and years, possibly. And so I think that it's definitely telling that the two have different approaches. And that's why I think that the royal family will probably keep operating with a, a longer game in their minds, the longer view. And so they'll be trying not to commentate on every little twist and turn and every new headline caused by the revelations that Harry and Meghan make. And I'm sure they'll keep making them as, as time goes on because they'll have this desperate need to remain somehow relevant and in the news. In the docuseries, he said when he left the royal family, he was hoping or leaving it open for a reconciliation. I mean, do you even feel at this point that Harry even wants that? Or do you, and do you feel like the royal family wants that as well? I think the royal family primarily wants to look after its reputation and its future. I think that's one of the dilemmas for the people within it. You know, the, the queen very famously has a great sense of duty and having become queen somewhat unexpectedly and at a young age, she really took that on board and took that very seriously. I think that Harry has made a different decision and, and that's his to make. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he's not the heir. Uh, he was never going to be king. Uh, he's what they rather unkindly call the spare. And that means that he's made a different decision himself. His decision is to try to have a more fulfilling personal life than to make his life uh, a fulfilling part of the royal family's continued existence. So I think that they have different priorities here. And that's perhaps why we're seeing these massively different behaviors. But they aren't necessarily compatible. And whether he will want to sort of pull back a bit and put his behavior more in line with their desires as well will be part of a negotiation between the two. And that'll be one that happens behind closed doors.
principles, mm-hmm. I think. They won't want to see, they won't want us to see every detail of their discussions about it. Uh, but I do think that they'll try and make some sort of peace, if not for personal reasons, uh, for more professional ones, let's say. Right. And, you know, um, another big story this week was, of course, Lord Dyson's investigation into the Panorama interview. What did you make of Harry and William's statement? I mean, Harry basically said that this was one of the reasons why she lost her life. Uh, Again, I think that 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 Lord Dyson investigation has a couple of parts to it. One is generally about the BBC and its methods in getting that interview and how trustworthy it is. Uh, but the other is uh, the Diana story itself. So I think that Diana was perhaps uh, somewhat tricked by Martin Bashir, the interviewer, it seems, with the use of forged documents. And that's something the BBC will have to answer for, especially as they had a covered up investigation of their own, which really found out the truth and then hid it. Uh, However, there are plenty of rumours out there and have been for years that Diana was preparing to give a TV interview to someone and that maybe this edged it for Bashir, but uh, perhaps it didn't necessarily make her do anything she wouldn't have done otherwise with another interviewer. And so I think in that respect, whether we can say her life would have been different and indeed her death might have been different had she not done the Martin Bashir interview, well, no one will ever know about these sorts of what ifs. Uh, It's certainly ethically dubious that he managed to secure that interview the way he did. uh, And that certainly could have had an effect on her and her mental state going forwards. But as I said, Diana was somebody who also understood how the press worked and publicity worked. I don't think even with a bit of trickery from forged documents, you necessarily go uh, and do something like give a primetime TV interview, you know, millions of people will watch uh, and not expect there to be some repercussions. I suspect she had made her mind up when she uttered those lines that there were three of them in that marriage and that was a bit crowded. Indeed, plenty of people have said that she didn't write the lines herself. She prepared them in advance uh, with scriptwriters. You know, if those sorts of things are true, that means that it wasn't just Martin Bashir's fault. And again, the rewriting and recasting of people's histories and reputations, even after they are quite some years dead, is another interesting aspect of this story. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insight as always. Before we wrap up, we have to check in on our royal kids in Pineside Palace. And Harry gave some insight onto how Archie is getting to know his late grandmother, Princess Diana. Yeah, really sweet. He said that there is a photo of Diana in Archie's nursery. And one of his first words, apart from mama and papa, was grandma, grandma Diana. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) Yeah, definitely really impressive. I'm wondering if he must have been, you know, not fully enunciating every syllable, but yeah, really sweet. I know my daughter's first word was data. So, um, but who knows, you know, he did say that one of Archie's other first words was crocodile. So he must have a large vocabulary for a a just two year old. (laughs) Yeah. You got to get a Diana photo in the room. Maybe that's what makes the difference. Seriously. Uh, We also had some other royal baby news and uh, Princess Beatrice is expecting her first child. Right. Really, really nice. Really exciting. He he or she is due in the fall uh, and she already has a stepson. Her husband has another son. They call him Wolfie, mm-hmm. uh, which is really sweet. So yeah. definitely. Yeah. She spoke out, I think, in in a magazine recently saying that COVID really, you know, um, 
was a, a really special bonding time for her and her stepson. She loves reading to him. And so I'm sure it's definitely preparing her for motherhood of her own. So it's going to be, it's going to be nice to have another royal baby in the mix. Right. There's just so many. It's there so- are. I think this is going to be the 12th great grandchild for Queen Elizabeth. That's unbelievable. Yeah, truly. Wow. Well, Molly, thank you so much as always for running down all things royals. Thank you, Christina. All right. Make sure to keep commenting, keep subscribing. We'll see you guys next week.